0: Brothers I couldn't address you as spiritual but as worldly writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.1 mere infants in Christ I gave you milk not solid food for you were not ready for it indeed you are still not ready you are still worldly for since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you you are, are you not worldly are you not acting like mere men for when one says I follow Paul another I follow Apollos are you not mere men what after all is Apollos and what is Paul only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's fields, God's buildings. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ rather. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you are yourselves—sorry—that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for. God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If anyone of you thinks he is wise by the standard of this, his, this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours and you are Christ of Christ and Christ is of God so then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court indeed I don't even judge myself my conscience is clear but that doesn't make me innocent It's the Lord who judges me therefore judge nothing before the appointed time wait till the Lord comes he will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts at that time each will receive his praise from God well that's enough I'd love to do the second half of the chapter but we'll be dashing now to get through this are you ready to get ears moving fast as I get my mouth moving fast 1 Corinthians is about divisions This early section. Not about evangelism as such, but the divisions have come through the misunderstanding of the gospel and so he takes them back to the gospel to explain why the divisions are so totally inappropriately. And the divisions have been about the personalities within the church, maybe about those personalities Paul, Peter, etc. But maybe they've just been used as names as to kind of highlight the party but they're not actually mentioning the particular parties back there. He's applied it in verse says of 1 Corinthians 4 to Paul and Apollos and and to Kephas. But it may mean that it's somebody else. Maybe it's those people. But it's about divisions on ministry. The Peter party, the Paul party, the John party, the Philip party. There are the kinds of options that you may have. And he's saying that these divisions misunderstand the gospel and misunderstand the ministry of the gospel. And so when I come to try and talk on a topic of evangelism, because I agree wholeheartedly with what Peter says when it comes to talk on topics, i like us to get back into an actual passage of the Scriptures itself. And here's good passages to be dealing with about evangelism, even if they're not the primary concern of the passages. The, the misunderstanding of the Gospel means a misunderstanding of the ministry, which is led then... To people boasting and priding themselves about certain ministries and ways of ministries, which has led to divisions in the church. And so he takes them back to the gospel and reminds them it's about Christ and him crucified. And now he is dealing with that ministry. He says, If that's what the ministry of the gospel is about, what you do is you preach it, not with clever words, not with great wisdom, not with marvellous, miraculous signs, but just plainly tell the message because it is a supernatural message, supernaturally given. Supernaturally received, it's a spiritual message. It's a secret we've been given, it's not something we've thought up, found out, worked out or got by education. And therefore, you cannot be spoken to, he says to the Corinthians, as Christians because you're not thinking as Christians, you're still worldly. Some people have seen that here is a third class of people, the, the non-Christian, the spiritual Christian and the carnal Christian the worldly Christian, but he's not saying that. It's the metaphor. He's saying, I can't, you're not actually thinking as Christians. I can only talk to you as pagans, the way you're carrying on, dividing yourselves about this party, that party. And so, he spelled out about these people involved, and the ministers, and the leaders. And so, this section is about the ministers, and the ministry of the gospel. And I have six things I want to say about this ministry of the gospel before we get back to evangelism, although evangelism will keep popping through them. Firstly, notice the low status of those involved in the ministry of the gospel. They are, verse 5, servants. Verse 7, they're not anything. It's a nothing. It's not that they are doing anything. They are just the slaves of God, the servants of God. Now, for those of us who are little people, we need to take heart in this you don't have to be in anything particularly you see it's marvellous you tend to see the great ones the billy grahams and the rest and you say well i could never be an evangelist i haven't got that gift of the gap i can't i couldn't hold a crowd of thousands i couldn't tell a story i i mean i couldn't do that there are many people who are defeated before you start, but recognize what they are they're only servants they're only slaves they're only doing a bit of service that's all it is notice the low status and for those of us who are big and famous people Notice what we are. Only servants. That's all. And so of course to make much of us is a nonsense. It's stupid because we're just servants of the one God doing a task assigned to us. second point I want to make is that of teamwork. Some are planting, some are watering. And one is giving the growth, namely God. But it's teamwork that is involved in evangelism. We tend to have a feeling that we've got to do the whole thing by ourselves but that's not ever taught in the New Testament. We're all in a team, and there's different tasks to do in this great work of God that we are engaged in. The giving of the cup of cold water to those who come in the name of Jesus Christ that they may go on preaching the gospel will not go unrewarded because you've actually contributed to the work of the gospel. That's a lovely thing, isn't it? most of us can cope with that can't we give someone a cup of cold water? That's possible isn't it it's within the realm of our abilities we can manage it I've met some art students who could actually get the tap turned on and the water in the cup huh? but you don't have to do you don't have to do civil engineering to be able to get the tap working do you It's something we can all manage but there's a hundred ways in which we can contribute isn't it? writing up the texts putting them on the, on the on the rods, getting them up there. I don't know how they did that. Huh? I don't know how they did any of those things. No idea. But they're making contribution to the teaching program so that as you sit here and you slowly drift off into boredom as I speak, your eyes wander up and you practice your memory verses. <laughs> huh? All part of the process, isn't it? The putting out of the books, the getting the registrations. There's hundreds of tasks in the Christian enterprise, aren't there? The cook's, at the beach mission, are just as much a part of the team. In fact, the first member to us to get onto the, the team, I would think, as anybody who is standing up in a pulpit preaching. That's right. We're all engaged in this common task and they did this teamwork. Three, uh, three John verse eight. Don't ask me which chapter. Three John verse eight. Good example about welcoming in people who come in the name of Christ, and talks about them as teamwork. As fellow workers, as indeed the phrase you get frequently in the New Testament—2 Corinthians 1:24 and Colossians 4:11—saying, because I see some of you are fleshing on your heads, note takers. 2 Corinthians 1:24. I'll give you that one. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you. It's Paul's whole attitude to people: working with them, even for themselves. We work with you for your joy, because it is by your faith we stand firm. Paul is always working with people. He has that sense of working with people even amongst the people to whom he is ministering. He is working with them in the the great enterprise. Third thing. Notice the high status of those who are involved in Christian ministry. Having dropped us to the low status in verse 7 of saying that we're a nothing, well, a not anything, which I think equals a nothing, notice what he goes on to say in the next little section. We are God's partners, God's fellow workers. Now that's pretty impressive, isn't it? That's the status we're in. The phrase is not used often. In fact, I think three times in the New Testament, you find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, as God's fellow workers. We urge you to re- not, not to receive God's grace in vain, And 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in the faith. It's a rare phrase, but what a great phrase. To think of thyself as a fellow worker with God. John's not with us this morning. He's preparing hard. On other things and programs, so I can speak freely for a moment. Peter embarrassed him last session. Why can't I in this? You see, when the applications go out for the uh, for the AFS conference with those magnificent photographs just inside, of Paul White and John Stott and other people. Well, there was a magnificent photograph of my brother. He looked very handsome and young. Well, that's a clever photograph, isn't it? <laughs> and. When they're all there, you see. Friends of mine in a jocular fashion, and some of my friends are known to have a sense of humor, <laughs> said to me, Hey, you're reaching the big time now, aren't you? On the same platform as the great white father. Huh? I won't say whether that was Paul or John. <laughs> you're reaching the big time. Rubbish. What are they but servants? They're nothing. Hmm? I have been on the same platform as God. What is John Stott? What is Paul White? What is Peter Jensen? What is Philip Jensen? God's fellow workers, that's what we are. That's not a bad platform to be sharing is it? And All of us who are engaged in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we are God's fellow workers. You can't get a better partnership going than that can you? You leave university, you enter into a career, you want to become a partner in a big firm, a big law firm, big medical well, check out the senior partner. If it turns out to be God, I think there'll be a lot of people queuing up to be on it. Well, if you're in evangelism, that is who your senior partner is. The status is magnificent because while you're watering and while you're planting, God is growing. God is giving the growth. He is doing his part in this one common enterprise. This is going to lead me into conflict with some of you in a few moments again, so beware all those questions on work that have piled up and I've ignored. This is where it's at, because we have this one same purpose. Verse 8, whether we're planters or waterers, or indeed whether we're God giving growth, we've got the same common purpose. We are God's fellow workers and we are working amongst you. And who are you? You are God's field. God's building. The metaphors are changing, you see, because you've got to grasp the principle. We're not really a building, we're not really a field. But they're two metaphors to describe God's business. God is in the business of building a temple, as the chapter goes on to spell out. And indeed, you are the temple of the Lord, aren't you? That's what it says there in chapter 3, verse 16, 17. We are God's temple. And God is at work at building a temple, not a temple of stone this time, but a temple made of people, living stones. That is God's work. Go back to Revelation 4, 5, 6. Here we go. What is the great drama of history? What is the universe about? Where is it going? The Lord on the throne, the Lamb slain for the people who are washed in his blood, whom he is now gathering together, who will be a kingdom of priests to reign with him forever. What is God's work at the moment in this world? It is the gathering together of the kingdom of priests, the innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe and language to gain with the 144,000 from each of the tribes of Israel so that the great praise can take place. What is God's work at the, in the world at the moment? That is God's business. That is the work of the Lord. Frequently, in the New Testament, we read of the work of the Lord, and the work of the Lord has always got to do with that enterprise—the gathering together of the people of God, the making of the people of God, the building of the temple of God, that holy and righteous. That's what God is at work in the world doing now. That is—he's not a printer, he's not a plumber. He's a temple builder, his temple. He's a kingdom gatherer, his kingdom. He is a saviour of his people. That's what God is doing. Look with me for a few more passages because I've come into conflict with some of you on this and I'm sure you need to be straightened out. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Are you not slow at turning your Bibles up? Ready? Ready? Sounded like you time, all the paper flapping. Right? 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? What's Paul's work in the Lord? What is the result of his work in the Lord? See, what is the work in the Lord? Go across to chapter 16. That one doesn't persuade you much. think, well, That's a strange verse to be using. Go across to 16. And 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 10, if Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. You see, if the plumber was doing the work of the Lord, then everyone is doing the work of the Lord, so Timothy wouldn't particularly be doing the work of the Lord. If the work of the Lord was living in godliness, well, every Christian would be doing the work of the Lord. But that's not the case. The work of the Lord is God's work in this world. And what is God's work in this world? It's gathering, it's building the temple. That's God's work in the world at the moment. And Timothy and Paul are engaged actively full time in that work of the Lord, paid for that by the generous gift of their friends. Keep in that same chapter and you look down to say verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Archaea. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And I urge you brothers to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it." What is the work? What is the labour? It is the service of the saints. That is the Christian work. That is the Christian labour. That's what we are to do. And so in that famous passage about work heartily, You know, in Colossians, when talking about the uh, the slaves, how they're to work, you think that's the one that should be coming in your mind at the moment, saying, "Hey, hang on, hang on, he's not got it right this time. Remember Colossians 3.22 about working. When you're to work, you're to work as if it was to the Lord. It's not the Lord's work, but you're still to go on working with the same kind of faithfulness in your secular employment as you would have if you were being out there doing that, that which is called the work of the Lord. But it's not the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the gathering together of his people to build his temple. That is God's work at the moment in the world. Come with me across to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Fewer pages rattling and you've got further to go. Philippians chapter 2. It's to the right in case you've forgotten. To the left if you're Jewish. You ready? Ready? But I think it necessary verse twenty five, Philippians two twenty five, I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also a messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for you all in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him not on him only but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow and therefore I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ risking his life to make up for, for the help you could not give me. Why have you got to honour this man? Because he is doing a particular job. What particular job is he doing? He's doing the job of Christ, the work of Christ, the work of the Lord. That's what it is, you see. And what was he engaged in? Well, it wasn't necessarily preaching, it was bringing aid and assistance to Paul because he's a fellow worker in the great job that Paul is doing. And what's the great job that Paul is doing? The work of the Lord. And so by being a fellow worker of Paul's, he's a fellow worker of the Lord's. Some plants, some water, some bring aid but they're engaged in the one common task, which is the Lord's task. We could go on chasing these verses through, but it comes out the same each time, I can assure you. You see, what is God doing in the work in the world at the moment? Is God bringing health to people? Is God bringing justice to people? Is God bringing economic freedom and liberty and equity to people? Is God bringing... No, no, no. God is bringing war and famine to the world at this time. God has subjected the whole of creation to futility in the now age. God's plans for this world now are not peace, are not equity, are not health. They are not God's plans for this world at this time. But futility and pain and suffering, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that is God's world now. In heaven, Christ on the throne, the Lord on the throne, the people of God being gathered around, the lamb slain. In heaven, the saints who are already persecuted and martyred saying, how much longer is the world going to be corrupt? How much longer? How much longer? But at the moment, we are waiting. Why are we waiting? so as to give more time for the persecuted to be filled up is the revelation answer. You can, you can actually relate it in, although I won't be able to do it for you at the moment for time's sake, but 2 Peter 3.10 we are waiting so as to give more opportunity for people to repent. God wants to bring the age of health. He wants to bring the age of economic security and justice. He wants to bring the age where there's no more pain and suffering and sorrow. But to bring that is to bring the end of the world and that is not the plan up until this moment anyway unless you people know something i missed the plan now is to hold off hold off for what what are we waiting for for the preaching of the gospel 1 peter 3:10 god holds back so as to give people opportunity to repent we are to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven but when you pray that what are you praying you are praying for the second coming now it's right to pray for the second coming perfectly right. But it's wrong to think that the second coming is going to come without the coming. It's wrong to think we're going to have an age of no more peace, no more warfare, of no more pain, of no more suffering, of no more sickness, of no more famine, of no more war before the coming of the Lord. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of the whole eschatology of the Bible, the whole understanding of the end of the world of the Bible, the judgment day and the rest. And yet over and again, one group after another, out of the best of motivations in the world, have been sidetracked from preaching the cross onto teaching all kinds of other things, good and right things, because they haven't understood what I'm just spelling out at this point. That the work of the Lord at the moment is the proclamation of the gospel in all its sense, including the building up of the Christians in teaching afterwards, the building of the temple, if you like to put it away, the gathering together of the people of God. That is God's work at the moment. That is his great work at the moment in this fallen world that he has condemned to futility and frustration, to pain and suffering, to war. Now, when you have your Christian brothers and sisters come and say to you, we must fight against war. Well, that's right, isn't it? We must fight against starvation. Well, of course, starvation is a bad thing. We must fight against disease. Yeah, well of course those things we should fight against. And inasmuch as we have opportunity, we should do good to all men, especially the household of faith. But if you think that is what the plan of God is for this world at this time, you haven't understood the Bible at all. You haven't got the point. God's plan for this world at this time is the gathering together of his people. That's what the plan is at the moment. And while you may be able to stop that war, you won't be able to stop warfare. While you may be able to cure this person, you won't be able to stop disease. While you may be able to bring some economic justice into this situation, you won't actually be able to stop there being poor in this world and injustice and famine and want because God's plan for this world at this time is sickness, is war, is injustice. That is God's plan for the world now. Haven't heard many people preach on this message, have you? Very unpopular message, isn't it? Even without my bad manners. No one likes that message. But I actually preached it to you on Saturday night. You missed the point, didn't you? When the four horsemen of the apocalypse went out, said, it was all that dreadful, but God couldn't be involved in that. But he is. He has subjected the world to frustration and futility so that we will hope for the coming age, so that we will be waiting for Jesus and looking for Jesus and longing for Jesus to return. And we're calling, how long, Lord? How long do we have to wait? So we'll be praying thy kingdom come with real earnestness and fervour not like the politicians in Canberra because we want the kingdom of God to come and we'll also be saying at the same time that terrible ambivalent thing but hang on Lord my brother is not yet converted my mother is not yet converted the person beside me is not and we'll go around preaching to them to get in before it is too late before the opportunity is gone not to go on living presuming that God will continue this world in its happy ways and it's misery but to turn back while there is chance, while he delays, while he holds back because he doesn't wish the death of anyone and we shouldn't either. God's plan, God's work now in the world. Three things I've said so far, one low status, two team work, three high status. Because you see, what we're called upon to do in the ministry of the gospel is the greatest of statuses. We're called upon to do God's work. The implication of that, of course, should be should be dramatic to which career you follow, shouldn't it? Should be profound on where your hip pocket is going to be placed, shouldn't it? What your life is to be lived about. You have the opportunity. All Christians have the opportunity of being God's partner in an enterprise. What an opportunity to pass up for other work. You see how I come to my conclusion that we should get as many people in on this as we can? And that building bridges, fine and good they are because I like getting across ravines and digging ditches and that's marvellous too because I like getting rid of dirty water and and giving me aspirin and I like that because I get bad headaches from time to time and And all those other kinds of things that you might want to do, uh, uh, nice and wonderful as they may be, really are of a different category and order completely. And a secondary category, a secondary order completely. Because they are being lived in the light of this futile, passing away world. Whereas when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you encourage the Christian congregation into godliness, when you build up the church of God, that great temple of the God, you are building for eternity. It's of a different category altogether. And to waste the Christian community's most intelligent, able, youthful, healthful, healthy people on the, on the enterprises that are secondary has been one of the great scandals of our Christian enterprise for it has just opened us up to the materialistic greed that we poke fun at when we are undergraduates and live to the full when we are middle aged. Watch them, watch them when they go for job interviews. The transformation of an undergraduate in his attire the day he goes for the job interviews is greater than a socialist joining the House of Lords. The hair is cut, parted and even occasionally combed. I have seen ties around necks that haven't seen shirts in years. (laughs) For the university is made up of good little right-wing materialists, capitalists through and through who go through the fancy free years, but don't believe a word of it. It was Abby Hoffman back in the sixties who said, Never trust anybody over thirty. When he was thirty five and found to be a minor politician and going on with the same kinds of things he used to criticise, he said, Well, I told you, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, he's very right. Because deep down all those revolutionaries aren't revolutionaries at all. They're greedy little capitalists. That's why they've gone to university. It's an establishment to show you the way ahead up the social economic ladder and Christians have gone that route and they've kept justifying it and rationalising it by saying if I get into the top part of the ladder then I'll be able to bring justice to the world which is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is the one who brings justice and when and how does he bring justice? By the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the time you've got to the top of the ladder you won't be able to recognise justice if you fell over it because you've had to sell out so many things on the way up. People who think they can change the church by becoming bishops. Deluded. You don't change the church by becoming a bishop. You change the church by the same way you change anything in this world, by the preaching of the gospel and prayer. That is how you change it. That is how you change the world. Not by running around in the United Nations outfit, the Peace Corps, Digging ditches, building dams, lovely things to do but you're not going to change the world that way. You will by preaching the gospel because if you do this you are God's partner in God's enterprise, God's business. Isn't that marvellous, the high status? Well let me pick on the next three things much shorter and quicker now that you've got the drift of that and if you haven't wake up. Quality the quality of the work then becomes important. You see, if that's the status of the work and the workers, then the quality is very, very important. We're not fiddling around with anything. We're fiddling around with God's temple. The great Australian quality standard will not do. You know you know the Australian standard, don't you? She's apples. She'll do. That will not do when it comes to this building because what are we dealing with in this building? We are dealing with God's building and so this passage whoops i've lost the part 1 corinthians 3 16 17 don't you know that you're yourselves god's temple that god's spirit lives in you 17 if anyone destroys god's temple god will destroy him not anybody's temple we're dealing with here we're dealing with god's temple for god's temple he says is sacred to him and you are god's temple isn't that fantastic see this tremendous bash god will destroy anybody who destroys his temple because his temple is sacred And by the way, folks, you're that temple. Staggering idea, isn't it? And so what we do in the building of this temple, in the gathering of this temple, the quality of our workmanship is very important. Not slipshod, not Australian, not public service kind of work. Real work needs to be done here of real quality. Because it will be, fifth point, judged in the end, verses 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 and so on, 11. It will be judged. And if you've been building with wood, hay, stubble, on the great last day, it will be seen because that'll all be just burnt up. And if you've been building with, a, with, a, with, with that of treasure and importance, then that will be shown. On the great last day, we will be judged by our works. Oh, this is not talking about our salvation, as he quite clearly makes so in verse 15. You'll still be saved. He's talking about your Christian life now. On the last day, we'll be seen for what it is. What have you been doing with your Christian life? You're saved one of God's people, washed in the blood of the Lamb, ready to sing the choruses when we get there, okay? But what will you be seen as? What will those years the Lord has left you in this world look like when all the pretense is taken away, all the veils, all that is sh- shaken off? What will you have? Your labour in the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Your labour is not in vain on the resurrection day. Your labour in the Lord. That's the Lord's work he's talking about there. He's not talking about your your work in ceramic engineering factories. That labour is in vain when the Lord returns. Of course, all those factories and all those toilets will be destroyed. Ceramic engineering will be of no value and consequence then, you see. But your Sunday school class, your fellowship group... That will be seen, what you did with them, how you prayed, how you prepared, how you wrote them letters and followed them up, how you went visiting them and sharing them with the things of God, how you continued to pray for them in the years to come and and took them out on excursions and shared with them the things of the Lord. That will be seen on the last day and it will be seen for what it is or what it isn't on the last day. Because that's the great building that is actually the eternal one that we're engaged in. See the status and see the judgment that is going to take place. And then it will all be done perfectly, the judgment, because we will be seen for what we are in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I don't worry about your judgment of me, because you don't know about me. In fact, I don't even worry about my own judgment of myself. Some introspective people need that verse, may I suggest. Some people get terribly wound up in worrying about themselves. Forget it. God knows what you're like, and his judgment of you is much better than yours, so just forget it. Press on with the job at hand. Stop going over and over and over how lousy you are. We all know that. Get on with the work right? and let God sort out the other thing. We get terribly introspective on ourselves. No, no. On the last day, says, Paul, chapter 4, verse 6, you see, then the Lord comes, he will bring to light everything in the darkness, even our dark hidden motives that we ourselves didn't understand. That's not altogether pleasant, is it? Because some of them we do know. But it'll all be seen on the last day. So there's no point running around judging each other at this stage of the game. I really do like John, John Stott, he's a marvellous preacher, but I, don't, I really can't stand Peter Jennings. He's not the same kind of character and quality. What's it to you? They're the servants of the Lord. They're answerable to him. And he is the one who is going to judge them? None of your business. Take the benefits of the ministry they are offering you. Praise God for them encourage them in it and pray for them more and more but don't go through what christians are always going through spending all the time analyzing and backstabbing their ministers that's not the point of the game is it and building parties and followings and the great gurus coming in the land and preaching what a rubbish we must avoid that and so what is the basis of the judgment that's going to come then what is it that is required of us each of us What is required of us? Well, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it's marvellous encouragement here to us, friends. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And those entrusted with the secret things of God. And now it's required that those who have been given a trust, that they prove faithful. God's method of judgment on the quality of our work is a judgment on faithfulness. Put a little asterisk and mark that one on your Bible. It's not, notice, it is not on success. Now don't let that mean that if I, we don't have to see anybody converted anymore. All I've got to just be faithful. We've got to aim at seeing people converted. That's the name of the game. But whether we see people converted or not has got nothing to do with us ultimately because God is the one who gives the growth, isn't he? All we've got to do is water, if that's our task. Or so, if that's our task. Or manure if that's our task. Whatever may be our task, we've got to do it, and we've got to do it faithfully and God in his mercy will bless. Been out preaching the gospel in the streets lately, haven't you? I guess it's pretty well sowing most of it, isn't it? Some of it might actually be just hoeing the ground a bit, getting people even thinking. But yesterday down in Melbourne, it looked as if there was somebody who was actually converted as we shared two ways to live with him. Don't know yet, of course, the day will reveal, but he seemed to understand the gospel. And prayed the prayer of commitment. And says he's going to follow on with it. Isn't that marvellous? Now we better get those people who did that evangelism out the front. Hadn't we? Because they obviously are great, aren't they? They're the wonderful They They know how to do it. They've passed the test, haven't they? Absolutely rubbish, isn't it? If it is true, as we hope and pray that it is true, this man has come to the Lord Jesus Christ, why has he and why haven't all the other people that you have spoken to? Because the work of God's spirit, isn't it? It is God who gives the growth. And so those of you who haven't seen anybody converted yet, you're not failures, are you? And those of you who have seen people converted, you're not successes, are you? That's not the basis of judgment. The basis of judgment is, are you doing your task faithfully? That's what we've got to do, faithfulness. Now, frankly, with all due respects, I would prefer to be judged on success than faithfulness and most university people I know would also. If you have your choice with your academic year this coming up, which would you prefer? To be, based, to be judged on the basis of being able to pass the exams or on the basis of going to all the lectures, reading all the books, doing all the work? <laughs> Give me the exams any day. <laughs> I only have to study them the night before. I got a couple of degrees in, all, in, in different faculties, but frankly, the one that I would win the medal on every time is exammanship. If they could just have a faculty of exammanship, we could spare a, waste, spend a, uh, spare a lot of time reading irrelevant books because all you really do need to know is the art of how to pass an exam, don't you? That's the key essence of, of education, knowing how to pass the exams. If you've got that, you don't have to learn another thing fact it's best not to learn anything The facts only get in the way you see if it's just success well, that's that's nothing faithfulness at first you see i seem relieved i don't have to do it i don't have to succeed and so it seems relieving at first but then you think something it means i have to keep doing it it means it's not good enough to say yes i taught sunday school it means i've got to prepare and you know if i'm going to prepare it might be best to prepare before Sunday morning. And if I've got to teach the class on Sunday morning, it might be helpful to go to bed early enough on Saturday night so that I don't come in like something the dog dragged in on Sunday morning to the kids. You see, if the great high point of my week is that little group of Sunday school children that I am teaching, that nine-year-old class of six boys, if that is the most important thing I do each week, and frankly, for most of you, it is the most important thing you do each week, then you need to organise your time around that. But how do we teach Sunday school classes? Well, it's the appendix. It's the little bit you can drop out when the study programme gets too hot. You go to the superintendent and say, look, I've got some exams in the next few weeks. Do you mind? I'll, just, I'll, I'll, I'll come back next year and finish the class off finish it off, you will. That is the most important thing you were doing all week. Fit your study around it. And if you can't, drop out of study and go and work in a factory. You'll find it easier to do the most important thing, the teaching of the Sunday school. You can't teach my children in Sunday school. I want you to do the right task. And if you can't do it that way, get out of the business, will you? Because you're holding the rest of us up. That's the trouble with us. John Harrow was scary, wasn't he? Talking about Argentina the other morning. Being in the war, not being able to go onto campuses and preach freely and openly and saying how after the war they found there were very few Christians left but the ones who were there were the ones. Who all the wood hay stubble had gone, hadn't they? Now dear brothers and sisters, I want us to get rid of the nominals as Peter put it. I want us to get rid of the slack Christians. I want us to get rid of the wood hay stubble. I want to have just that group of people who are really going for it. Fidel Castro was asked when he conquered Cuba some years ago, what he'd do different if he was to lead the revolution again? And he said, well, last time I had 70 men with me. This time I'd only have seven. The others just hold you back, you see. And God does that from time to time. And the basic method God uses is persecution. I don't want persecution for anything in this world. I hate pain, especially my own, as I keep telling you. Please get out of the team now so that I don't have to be persecuted to get rid of you. It's bad enough I've got to put up with you, let alone have to go through war in order to get rid of you. If you're going to be on the team, then it's boots and all. Don't put your hand to the plough and turn back. Don't say, I've got to go home and bury my father. I'm only doing what Jesus did to his disciples, aren't I? I'm only saying what Jesus said. Oh, yes, I'll do that. I'll do that. But first, I've got to do things that are less important, that are secondary. Your question is not, should I go on the mission field? But why shouldn't I go on the mission field? Don't come and ask me about the question of whether you should. Try and find any good reason why you shouldn't. You say, but I haven't been called. You have been called. The very gospel calls you to proclaim it. You don't need someone to get up the front and go, Yoo-hoo, now you're called. You don't have to have deep, meaningful experiences of zappings up and down your spine and tingles on the back of your hair. You just have to know that Jesus is Lord and his plan and purpose for the world at the moment is warfare and pain and suffering while he holds off the judgment so that he can call together a new people. And he calls them together through the preaching of Christ crucified. And that is your task, to share in the preaching of Christ crucified. You may not be a bloke out the front with microphones. You may be a hander out of the doors, you might be the writer of the checks, you might be the the driver of the trucks, the carrier of the bags, you might be the person who does the follow-up. But frankly, if you've got into tertiary education, there's every chance that you can do the speaking. There's every chance that you can do the travelling. And so our basic training for undergraduates is how to lead somebody to Christ. And most people who are undergraduates can do that, can learn that much of the Bible. You can learn that much, it's simple, isn't it? can string together the gospel clearly enough for people to understand it. Most Christians who reach the university can follow up a new Christian using those kinds of tools we've given, such as the seven just-for-starters Bible studies. They're very simple, they're very elementary. Most undergraduates can grasp it. And most undergraduates can give up their puny little careers and get out on the mission field as full-time evangelists. We are a middle-class, wealthy, affluent country don't go around flagellating yourself because you happen to be middle class. Rejoice and be glad. Because what it means is that God has given me health and education and a marvellous passport that will travel the world. Why has God got so many middle class Christians? So that they'll feel guilty? What a load of nonsense. So that we'll go through a collective repentance for what we've done to Aborigines 200 years ago? What garbage. What garbage. nonsense he's given us the wealth and the education and the health so that we will go into the world to people who can't do it and share with them the great news of Jesus Christ I praise God I'm a rich man I'm thankful I'm rich and I don't feel in the slightest bit guilty about it and I resent people who try and make me feel guilty about it because if God had wanted me poor I would be poor I'm not I'm rich Filthy rich. And he's made me that way. Why? So that I will be spent for him. He can't spend poor people, can he? He's given me the gifts to be used. The great danger, of course, in the rich is that having been made wealthy, I use it for my own aggrandisement. And the great shame. Of Australian Christianity is that is what exactly we have done. What is required? Not success. Faithfulness. What a relief. What a responsibility. Both those things, isn't it? So here then, let me tie up the evangelism series. Firstly with a couple of short advertisements one, there are great books, as Alan Chapel was saying the other day. In that series that John Chapman has, his evangelistic book, The Fresh Start, which is brilliant. You must own several copies to give to your friends. Buy up big. It's a lovely, wonderful evangelistic book. It's tremendous. There is another one called No Until Tell the Gospel. There's a whole bunch of them up there on the, on the bookstore because they've been out of print for six months and they've only just come back into print and they go through what is evangelism, how it is, what is the message, how do you preach it, know and tell the gospel. It is a great primer on Australian evangelism with that great lovely friend John Chapman. If you've ever heard him preach, when you read this you can hear him saying it. It's a marvellous book. In the same series is that very great book that's come to us by Tony Morfitt, the hole in my ceiling, the atheist whose who's roof couldn't hold God out. It is a screamingly funny book. It is highly entertaining. There's a whole another group of non-Christian friends to whom you would find this a useful book to give them. So again, it's the kind of book to have two or three copies around so as to be giving out to your friends. They're all cheap. I don't work for hodders. There is another one that hasn't hit the bookstand yet. I've been sent a preview copy for reviewing purposes by Paul Barnett called is the new testament history is the new testament history it's like the ff bruce books are the new testament documents reliable it's easier to read than that it's up to date it's australian it has the advantages it takes a slightly different tack it's a very it's a marvelous book i'm glad i won't give you the whole review on it you'll see more of it coming around now but again for those who want to say yeah but what's the historical basis of what you're talking about gives you the answers it's an apologetics book that one Paul Barnett is the New Testament history. It'll be on the bookstands in February. I understand. My brother's launching it somewhere. I think. Here he is. Through Tony's holy ceiling. Okay, let's bring the summary right back down there. What have we done? The other side of my advertisement, sorry. We've tried to give you practical training. Now, it is useless unless you repeat it, unless you put it into effect. Hands up all those who have ever done one of those courses on speed reading. Hands up those who, having done that course in speed reading, haven't read any faster. I'm better than most of you, I've done three of them. And why is it that they haven't worked with me? Because I never put them into practice. I always think that by spending two weeks there doing the course, I will now be able to speed read. And for the first few weeks, I can speed read. But as I start picking up books I'm actually interested in, I slow down and I fall back into all my old bad habits. And within six months, I roll up for another speed reading course. (laughs) It's a practical skill... ...that can be put into application and worked out. But it's not a course that having got the certificate... ...you can say, well, I can do that now. doesn't work like that, does it? And a certificate from a speed reading course is an irrelevance, isn't it? You don't stick it up on your, on your, uh, your wall just between your PhD and your Masters. It's an irrelevance in itself. The question is not, has he qualified? The question is, are you reading faster? That's the test of it, isn't it? And there's no point in me saying, as I used to say, those speed reading courses are no good, they don't work. They do work. Every time I finished, I was reading very quickly. What didn't work was me. I didn't work at keeping on doing it. And so, having gone through the exercise, I wasted it. Now, that's how I hype up on evangelism, isn't it? Okay, we get ourselves stirred up on it. We get ourselves feeling the responsibility to be doing it. We find out a new technique or a new track for us to go. got a new method. We're going out there and doing it. And in two or three weeks' time, when I've stopped doing it and I haven't got the encouragement around about me, I'm no longer doing it. It all falls apart. And then six months later, someone says, have you ever seen Two Ways to Live? And you say, oh, I've been there, done that. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't. That's why you have got to make it work. It never works. It's not automatic. We've just given you a tool. Poor workmen blame their tools. Is that right? The tool's not perfect. Never claimed it was. It's not a bad little tool. good little tool. I'm glad that you've been able to share in it for a little while because you could see that there's more to be done than you imagined. And it was easier than you imagined, wasn't it? And it helps you. Now, if you put it into practice and keep working at it, then it won't make you any better, but you, by practice... We'll be working away at it. It's going to be a a long, hard slog ahead, isn't it? And next time you hear about it, don't say, I've been there and done that. Say, oh yeah, I have been there and I have done that and I didn't keep it going. So let's have another look at it. Let's have another go at it. Because it can be helpful for me. God's great drama in the universe is the gathering of the kingdom of priests, the building of his temple. His method is foolishness to this world but it is wise it's his wisdom which assures that no one can boast except about God because they're not clever enough to ever have worked it out can't approach God in your wisdom but only in his wisdom and his wisdom is that his son should be crucified and to then preach to the world you mightn't like him his methods you might think they're pretty stupid pretty old fashioned Pretty. that's his method And we can never move from it. It's a spiritual work, not an intellectual work. We've got to grasp that as tertiary people, haven't we? So we pray and preach. And in this, we are partners. Working together as we preach, not just in pulpits, but by writing letters to people, by inviting people, by handing out leaflets to people, by doing cartoons, by ringing up people, by sharing at the meetings, by being on time, by counselling people, by following up people we work together as a team and there's no great gurus there's no great high status we in ourselves are nothing because it's god that gives the growth but the work we are involved in is god's work and so there's nothing more important to ever be doing there's nothing more important to ever be doing yes i am raising the sacred over the secular again yes i'm saying the lord's work is full-time christian ministry work Yes, I am saying your problem is to find up the reasons why you shouldn't be there, not why you should be there. Yes, you are hearing that properly. God is at work through preaching and prayer. We are to be faithful in our tasks. For our God is at work through us isn't that astonishing let's pray we are astonished at your kindness and faithfulness to the Lord to us that you not only bring us to yourself through the gospel but you entrust to us its preaching and so we pray Father that with this sacred trust you have given to us That you by your spirit would continue to encourage us to faithfulness in the task. That as we go we may sow your word. We may water it. We may speak the word of encouragement to this brother and that. We may challenge. We may correct. We may refute. We may so pray and so preach Christ and him crucified. That through our endeavours you father would call your people into your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.